0: The book of Second Corinthians chapter four verse one through verse eighteen. This can be found on page eight eighteen of your pew Bible. Second Corinthians chapter four verse one through verse eighteen. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth, plainly we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, But Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show us that this all surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that this life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us to you to him. All this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. May God bless the reading of His word.
1: trouble my throat okay there we go I begin with a quiz and you guys are bright I know some leading universities in Boston you know Boston universities were famous even in Singapore around the world Boston University so you guys can handle this and this is really you you're gonna get this right right anyway because this is fundamental to everything I've done in the last 13 14 years I've been here so I'm sure you're gonna get it right no pressure I mean, I won't kill myself after this if you all get it wrong, but I'm confident you're going to get it right. So last Sunday, after, you know, Sunday, Saturday and Sunday are really the times I socialize the most. Because back when this congregation was mostly young adults, single young adults, then there was, people had a lot of time at lunch, people had a lot of time in the evening, and I did a lot of socializing then. But now that so many families and young kids and, you know, the last thing they want me to do is pop in on an evening. So it's really Saturday and Sunday is the only time I get the social bug out, and and last weekend I, I had some time for socializing and that was fine. But I still I had a surfeit. I had a, I had a surplus left over by the time Sunday came home. I drive back home, and my neighbor happened to be out. Now he's lived there a couple. He's lived there for a year, and I've been trying to connect with him, and hardly ever. You know, we helped him shovel his driveway once. You know, we talked about gardening once. And anyway, he happened to be out, so I walked over to see him. And he said, "Oh, he, he, you know, we talked a little bit about the weather or the gardening." And then he said, "Look, he said we've been living here a year, and so two weeks from now we're going to have a party to celebrate." So I said, "Great, shall I drink something?" <laughs> Isn't that what you'd say? And, and there was a, a real quick flicker across his face, and then he recovered. And he said, "Sure." I mean, bring something or don't bring something. It doesn't matter. And then he continued talking about it. So I realized that actually he, you know, he, 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 what was happening is he's having a bunch of people over, and the streets aren't that wide, and you can only park on one side. And sometimes my son parks on, on the side of the street. So he wanted us to all park on the same side of the street. You with me? Yeah. He was not inviting me to this party. He was asking me not to park in a place where it would interfere with the other cars that were parking. Now, here's the riddle. Here's the question. And it, what principle of Bible interpretation does that incident illustrate? What principle of Bible interpretation? Come on, you can do this. You've got to be out loud. Oh, and here's the thing. Whoever... Angel... Whoever gets this right gets doubles on whatever angel cooks next time. Ha! I didn't tell angel, but there you go, angel. Ha. Okay, what principle of Bible interpretation does this illustrate? If you don't answer, I'm going to call on people. Come on, at 14 years I've been here, right? Authorial intent. intent! Where did that come from? Oh yeah, there you go, Authority on Authorial intent! Now, I know the rest of you knew it, but you just don't like to yell out in public. And Patek is a vocational ministry, so she needs people to answer questions when she asks them. And so when I ask a question, she sympathetically answers for me. And thank you very much. Um, but here's the thing. You see, he came with an intention in mind that he was trying to communicate it. Communicate. And he communicated it poorly or I <laughs> listened poorly. And in the end, I invited myself to a party I wasn't invited to. But it illustrates the point of authorial intent. When we come to the Bible, what do we want to hear? Now, I know, I know, I know. We want to hear something that blesses our lives. We want to hear something that speaks to our heart. And that is the ultimate goal. But what's the first step? The first step is to understand what the Bible was trying to say. And then we figure out, if that's what the Bible's trying to say, What? how does it rel- relate to me and where I am now? We don't want to say, here's the issues of my life, and then go read Bible verses and stick them into the issues of my life, because we could end up twisting the Bible. What we want to do is go to the Bible and say, okay, what issue were they dealing with? And then, how does that impact my life, given that what God said to them in that day, how does it apply to my life today? Authorial intent. Meaning is determined by the originator of the communication. My neighbor had one meaning, I had another meaning. Who was right? He's the guy who initiated the communication, you know. And he was too gracious to let me know that I misunderstood and I wasn't actually invited to this party. Uh, And now I may have to make a chocolate cheesecake just to drop it off as a housewarming gift because I can't go to the party anyway. It's Easter weekend. But there you go. (laughs) The meaning is determined by the author. And as, as recipients, we try to understand that meaning, authorial intent. Okay, now switching into today's. This week, Time Magazine had an interesting article about how to motivate people, particularly in the context of work. But, but how managers should motivate people. And it proposed three forms of motivation, one of which at least doesn't work. And it suggested this. Don't bribe people to work. The theory is, you pay them enough so they don't have to worry about money. You pay people enough so that money is no longer an issue. But you don't try to assume, you don't assume that if you pay them more, they're gonna work harder. You don't bribe people to work. It, All it does is it trains them to look for money. It bribes them to get, it motivates them to get paid. It doesn't motivate them to do a good job. So get rid of that. The second motivation the article proposes, the first positive one, is to help people connect emotionally with what's going on. Help them feel something valuable here, or something special here. Help them have emotional experiences. No help them have positive emotional experiences at work because people have a lot of emotional experiences that don't help motivate them. And you know how we do that? Right? We do that in church all the time, don't we? I shouldn't tell you this because it can be less effective, but why do we have retreats every year? So we can have deep emotional connection at a retreat and then we you know it. And actually, my conversion was a highly emotional experience for me on a retreat and it sustained me through many long non-emotional times so help them have a help them feel something a third way is to celebrate minor successes you know the phrase is uh, you, you don't wait until you kill an elephant to have a party because there's not a lot of elephants and we're not meant to kill them anyway if you're an environmentalist you don't wait for the big things you celebrate the little successes so the people have an, have an atmosphere of, the, oh, yay, these things are going great. And fourth, they said, start a cult. Oh, yes. oh. Now, they don't mean by that, but what we mean by that. What they mean by that is, you know, uh, you got to have a story about how your organization overcame tremendous odds and succeeded spectacularly. And, and now you tell the story, and, and everyone in the, in the comp- company shares this dynamic story of how you, in all the world, it's your group that especially has met these insurmountable ads. And so Sony, for many years, uh, 60s, 70s, Sony's story was they had taken a post-war apocalypse in Japan. A- and they'd seen it through the time when made in Japan meant cheap, I can remember as a kid, Made in Japan, I mean, you made fun of this stuff. And then they turned it around to Made in Japan was a mark of quality. And Sony took responsibility for the, doing that. You know, you create a story. Oh, here we go. How about American history? I, was, I don't know why this came up the other day, but I was, I didn't look at it. You all know Paul Revere's ride? You all know Paul Revere's ride. This is Lexington, right? We gotta know Paul Revere's ride. You, you lose your membership in this church if you don't know Paul Revere. Okay, do you know how many people went out that time on that ride, how many people were actually riding? Who says, okay, who says, who are the bold people that say two? Okay, who's the bold people that say three? Yeah, three, I don't know anything about four. Maybe I'm wrong, but anyway, I heard about three. No, now what happened to the other two? They all got captured, but what happened to the other two? No, they didn't die. They'd, they'd be the part of the story. They'd be part of the myth if they died. They escaped. Paul Revere was the only one of the three who wasn't capable of escaping. So we've turned him into a hero for being a failure. But this is the nature of forming a cult. You see, we, 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 we create this story about this great thing that Paul Revere went through. Because he failed, we turned him into a hero. Oh, he, yeah, yeah, great thing he attempted, you know. So he's our hero, we form a cult. So those are the four ways that this article suggests. One, don't motivate. Three, do motivate. Don't bribe. But instead, help people connect emotionally. Uh, secondly, uh, emphasize the little successes. And thirdly, form a cult, a, a story that makes everybody feels, that makes your company feel special. Of all the other companies doing the same thing you're doing, your company is special because you do this. And you've overcome these obstacles. Now, this becomes relevant to the text today because Paul is talking about motivation. Take a look at chapter 4, verse 1. 2 Corinthians, chapter 4, verse 1. It's really easy to figure out what Paul's point is in this story, in this this account, because he says it twice. He says it once at the beginning, he says it once at the end. And this is a, a literary device called inclusion or you could say bookends, but notice this. Chapter 4, verse 1. This is on page 818. If you use the Pew Bible, if you do use those electronic gizmos, I don't know how you find it, but there you go. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. We do not lose heart. The question of motivation How does he keep going? We do not lose heart. Then verse 16, therefore, at the end of the passage he says, therefore, because of these things, we do not lose heart. He begins, we don't lose heart. He ends, we don't lose heart. In between, he's explaining how he can keep going. Now there's actually two things going on in this passage, and I'm only going to talk to you about one of them. The other one I put in the devotional. If you want to be real close to authorial intent, here's what's happening in Corinth. You know, we talked a little bit last week about how there, some outsiders came in and they were opposing Paul and say Paul's theology stinks. You know, you, Paul's a lousy apostle. Well, something worse is going on for Paul. Because it's the Corinthian church themselves that think Paul's a lousy apostle. In this whole chapter, the whole book, the whole of 2 Corinthians is Paul defending himself. He does some other things, but the one theme that runs throughout the whole book, the one thread that ties it all together is Paul defends himself from his converts' accusations and criticisms that he's a lousy apostle. And they're saying it from the beginning and they're saying it to the end. And they got all sorts of complaints. Now. We won't approach Second Corinthians that way. That's the closest we could get to the original text. That's really the original point, the authorial intent. Why Paul is not a lousy apostle? Because if I, if we preach twelve weeks of that, you're going to think I'm paranoid, you know, as if you're like the Corinthian church sitting there thinking, "Boy, this guy's a lousy pastor," and and I don't think that about you. I mean, you just gave me six months sabbatical. You're a wonderful church. <laughs> but, you know, it, it's really not that relevant or pressing for us because I, uh, uh, I don't... If we have that sort of relationship, you know, send me an email. No, 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 don't. If we have that sort of relationship, send Elder Terry an email so he can break it to me gently. Uh, but no, no, no. What we're going to look at is this, though. You know. So, oh, well, let me, let me point the significance. When Paul says, we do not lose heart, who's he talking about? Yeah, he's talking about himself. He's not saying us, modern Christians. He's not saying Christians everywhere and every place and every time. What he's saying is that, I don't lose heart. Me and my ministry team, we don't lose heart. Even though we face all these obstacles, including opposition from the church. You know, the church looked at Paul's ministry and said, God's not blessing this ministry. And he's not blessing this ministry because Paul's hopeless. Apollos. They liked Apollos. Apollos is good. But Paul, no. And so Paul stands up to them and says, look. And he goes through a whole litany of things here that he faces. But he says, we don't lose. I do not lose heart. And Paul's defending his ministry. We won't approach it that way. Because that's a little bit more specific than what's going on here in our context. Maybe if we were in conflict, you know, maybe, you know, that, that happens, right? Churches, either through the, either because the church is contentious or because the pastor has truly you know, made, done some stupid things. Churches can get in contention with their pastor. And then maybe you need to use Second Corinthians that, that way. No, even that doesn't work. What you've got to have is a church that's in contention with its pastor and the pastor is blameless and effective and the church is just kind of, Messing, messed up. Then you can preach Second Corinthians that way. So we haven't been doing that mostly. But I don't want you to miss the whole point of authorial intent in Second Corinthians. So I've taken the first eight passages of no, first six passages of Second uh, Corinthians and shown how they reflect this authorial intent about the opposition against Paul. And I put them in the devotional. So if you want really strict authorial intent, know what's really going on in Second Corinthians. Read the devotional for this week. What I want to look at instead is something else, something related. What we're going to look at is a, is a little bit cl- less close to authorial attempt, but a little, still a legitimate use of the uh, passage. Since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. What I want to look at together this morning is all of us, when we're involved in ministry, what can keep us from losing heart? Not just me as a pastor, or Pastor David, but all of us. What You know how it is in ministry, right? There's this curious thing in American culture where we expect success to be spectacular and where we expect it to be not instantaneous, but pretty quick. You know, this affects pastoral ministry. You know, you, you can see on some book blurbs, you know, founder of such and such church began 10 years ago in his living room and now 10,000 people meet together every week. This is what we expect. Maybe the guys worked hard, but we expect from 12 people in a living room to 10,000 in a mega church within a decade and this is spectacular. But it's not just pastors. It affects how we do all ministry. Maybe you have an outreach ministry. And you go meet on the street with the homeless people week after week after week and It's not obvious that a lot's happening. We once ran a big brother ministry through the church, through the Chinese side particularly, and one of the brothers from EM, English ministry, who was participating in it, came to see me. He says, I don't know if this is a good use of my time. He said, I've been doing this every week for a year. I meet up with this kid, and I don't see any progress. We do not lose our heart. I've, we have a lot of children in the ministry in the, in the church now. And I think one of the most challenging parts of ministry is kids, because partly it's not at a really high intellectual level, so sometimes it gets boring and mundane, and the kids like to hear the same stories every week, you know. And then when you're working with kids, how long will it take to see results? By kids, I mean we also would call them kids, right? I mean like three-year-olds, four-year-olds, five-year-olds. How long will it take to see results? Concrete results, maybe 10 years, 12 years. How do you keep doing that? Hoping that one day it's going to make a difference. We want to see a difference. We want to change the world. And we want it to happen in a relatively short period of time. So our culture sets us up to lose heart. Because once in a while, something spectacular will happen in a short time. But mostly not. Mostly... We serve for a long time in the same direction, faithfully. And we see these occasional things that the Time magazine called as uh, strings of minor successes. We, we see little things, little thing, and we've got to learn to celebrate. We, we've got to see, learn to see God in the little things, because otherwise we lose heart. What I want to look at this morning is, how did Paul, he faced far more adversarial circumstances than we ever will. How did he not lose heart? And then how can we learn from him how in our easier circumstances, how we should not lose heart? Why we should persevere, even though we don't see as much results as we'd like to. Paul gives six reasons why he persevered. At least I identify them as six. You you could count them differently. Now, I don't expect you to walk out of here with six reasons. But grab hold of at least one of these. The first reason, verse 2, chapter 4, verse 2. We have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Just briefly, what's going on here? Paul's preaching the gospel. Now, the gospel has some parts that help people feel good. And the gospel has some parts that offend people. You know, he's got to tell people in the first century, they got all sorts of gods, and all sorts of people worshiping all sorts of gods. And the first thing he's got to tell them is, these are not true gods. The Father, Yahweh, is the true God, and Jesus is his son. That's not going to be happy news. He's going to tell them things about heaven. But he's going to tell them things about hell. He's going to tell them things about eternal life. But he's going to tell them things about judgment. Now, he'll get a much better response if he just cuts the message in half and teaches only half of it. All the good stuff. None of the bad. And and, and he'll, a lot more people will respond. And he says, no, I won't do that. Why not? Because he says, look at this in verse 2. It's the Word of God. This is something sacred. This is the revelation from the Father above. This is the truth about the universe. I will not distort the Word of God, even if it gets a better response. Why do we persevere for the same reason that Paul did? Why don't we lose heart? Because God has entrusted us with this spectacular ministry. He's invited us to bring the word of God to bear on people's lives. Now, if we give up this word of God, we can connect with people. You know, we can use pop psych or management or whatever techniques or fun or whatever it is. But we've distorted, we've left behind the treasure that we have that he's given us to give to people. Paul says, I do not lose heart. Because I have a ministry of the sacred word of God. We do not lose heart. Even if results come slowly, we do not lose heart because God has entrusted us with this sacred ministry that basically nobody else has except those who know God. First reason we do not lose heart is because of the sacredness of our ministry and the word of God that he's given to us. The second reason why we do not lose heart, Paul offers in in verses 4, 3 to 5. Even if our gospel is veiled, you see, he's preaching the gospel, people are not responding, the Corinthians are faulting him for it. Paul says, okay, not as many people respond as I would like. Uh, Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. A second reason Paul doesn't lose heart in his ministry is because he recognizes that there's more going on than what we see with our eyes. There are forces of good in the world. There's God. There are forces of evil in the world. There's Satan and his minions that are opposing the word of God. And Paul says, look, part of the reason that the ministry doesn't proceed faster is because we're facing opposition. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Paul is saying, I don't own this failure. I'm preaching the word of God. I don't own this failure. It's Satan who's blinded their eyes. We can't have this expectation that just because we're God's people doing God's work, that the whole world is going to fall before us and say embrace and us and say, wonderful. There's more going on in the world than just God. There's Satan in his opposition. Paul says, I recognize that we face a hard battle. Therefore, I don't lose heart. I don't accept my expectations so high that they're unrealistic in a fallen world. I do not lose heart because I recognize that there's something else going on behind the scenes. And it's true for us. If we walk into ministry thinking, this is going to be a cakewalk because I'm dealing with adults or because I'm dealing with Christians, this is going to be a cakewalk. It's as though we, we deny that Satan even exists. As if there's no opposition at all. As if we expect to be, I hope this is not sensitive to any of you, like the Russians marching into Crimea, which is predominantly Russian ethnic. As if we're the only people with an army and we're going to march through the borders and no one can stop us. We're not the only people with the army. We are on the winning side. We're not the only people with an army. There's Satan who's opposing. What God does. So we don't lose heart because we expect the battle to be tough and slow. A third reason Paul doesn't lose heart, verse 6. For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness. You see, this comes from the creation story. The God who first created the world, the God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, and, and light shone out of the darkness in creation, made his light shine in our hearts. To give us the light of the knowledge of the God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Why don't we lose heart? Each of us has one compelling reason not to lose heart. If you've come to meet Christ, if you know Christ, you are your own most compelling reason not to lose heart. Because you were once a prisoner of darkness. And God said, let light shine in that darkness, and light shone in your heart. It's happened for you. So you know the power of God firsthand, because it happened in you. And maybe you weren't the most likely of converts. And maybe you've experienced the change that happens when light shines in the darkness. Paul says, because of our own personal experience. You know, Paul had that experience on the road to Damascus. But for us, it's maybe not so dramatic as his. But if the light has shone into our hearts, that gives us a reason not to lose heart. A fourth reason Paul gives in verses 7 to 12. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. He talks about everything that he suffers. We who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal bodies. The fourth reason he doesn't lose heart is this. Even when he's knocked down and beaten up and discouraged, he doesn't give up. Why? He said it's precisely at those times when I'm at my weakest, that I know anything good happens, it's not because of me. Everyone around can see, I didn't do this by my own skill. They know it happened, not because of me, but because of Jesus in me. We have this treasure, the gospel treasure. We have this treasure in jars of clay. What's the jar of clay? Paul himself is the jar of clay. I have the gospel within me, it's in my ministry, to show that what? Why did God give the gospel to people like Paul, who's not all that impressive or powerful, to show that it's not Paul, but it is the gospel? We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God, not from us. So when we get discouraged, Or when we see our inability, you know, this ministry would be so much better if I were like this. If I could do this, the ministry would go so much better. If I could sing better, if I could teach better, if I could interpret the Bible better, if I could, oh, I don't socialize better. Oh, if I were more outgoing, whatever that filling in for yourself. If I were blank, this ministry would go so much better. What does Paul say? Why did God not make Paul that way? Why didn't he make you that way? So that you don't get the credit. that God does. But you see how freeing that is? Because what it means is, even when you're at your greatest level of struggle and frustration, you won't be defeated. Because your job is to show the glory of God. And the glory of God shines when you don't shine. Paul says we have these treasures in jars of clay to show that the all-surpassing power is not ours, but it's God's. A fifth reason why Paul doesn't lose heart. Verse 14. We know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will raise us also with Jesus and present us with you to himself. Next week we will celebrate Easter. We will celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. But we won't celebrate just the resurrection of Jesus. Remember the Bible calls him the first fruits. He's the first in the harvest. Next week when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, we are also anticipating our resurrection. We know the outcome of this story. No matter how difficult it may look like now, or no matter how few results we may see now, we know the final outcome of this story. And it's not just something we believe, as though we have no basis, we're just hoping and and whatever, you know, maybe, maybe it'll turn out all right. Jesus rose. And he's like the seed from which the whole harvest comes. He rose as a guarantee that we will rise. We do not lose heart because we know the final outcome of this story. The one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. And here's the sixth reason that Paul does not lose heart. Outwardly, we are wasting away. Paul was struggling. He was suffering. The whole litany of struggles he went through is in this passage, and I didn't read them. But he was having a hard time, brutal time. Outwardly, we are wasting away. He was wasting away. Yet inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles, his troubles were neither light nor momentary, but our light and momentary troubles when compared to the final outcome. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory. Paul's not just talking about resurrection here, as he mentioned earlier. What he's talking about is the outcome of this resurrection. Paul says, whatever price we pay in this life, and let's face it, you and I will never pay the price he paid. But whatever price he paid in this life, whatever price you and I pay, it discouragement, frustration, opposition, difficulty, will be more than matched by the glory that awaits us in the future. Verse 17, no matter how hard life gets, it looks like it's a light and momentary troubles because there's an eternal glory coming. Paul says, we do not lose heart. Why? Because of all the things we face today, there's so much more that we're gonna get from this story. Paul did not try to bribe He had no money to pay the Corinthians, and there was not enough money to pay him. He had to work for his own welfare. Paul did not emphasize the little successes because he didn't have enough to convince the Corinthians about those little successes. But Paul created a cult, if you will. He, He told a story. And the story is this, that the gospel is unique and true and it faces tremendous opposition, supernatural opposition in the form of Satan. But Paul didn't lose heart because he himself had experienced the power of the gospel in his own private life. Because he knew that his struggles brought glory to Christ. When he proved that he couldn't do it, Christ did it through him. He knew that the message and the ministry would eventually win the victory. And because he participated in that ministry, he would one day be glorified. And Paul says, because of these things, we do not lose heart. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would drive home the truth of your word to our lives and hearts so that we will not lose heart. So that we will celebrate the honor of being involved in your work. So that we will look forward to ultimate success. So that one day we will join you in glory and be glorified. Empower us, Father, by
0: your word and by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.